Listeners, beware, you're in for a scare. Hello and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that was lurking under your bed during the 80s and hiding in your closet during the 90s. Or was it? <laughs> or hiding in its own closet during the 90s. <laughs> Some episodes. No. I'm Chris, your podcast host, most likely to be found one Halloween waving a replica of his own head in the air, screaming, this is a symbol of love. <laughs> I'm Becky, the podcast host, most likely to open the door to the basement and in the darkness see two yellow glowing eyes staring back at me. No, wait, it was just my cat. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Seth, the host most likely to have blown much bigger than that. (laughs) What What is that from? It's from Night of the Living Dummy. They're talking about bubblegum bubbles. That's right. You're right. And I'm Daniel Montgomery, the guest most likely to have a dad who runs a horror movie studio where they're testing an amusement park ride, and it turns out I'm actually a robot. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. You can't see, but he's short-circuiting right now. Oh, I am. Sparks are flying. (laughs) In today's episode, you're about to feel a chill in your bones and get your spine tingled, and you may even get goose flesh. (laughs) (laughs) Goose flesh. Uh, Which is more commonly referred to these days as goosebumps. Thanks for clarifying. (laughs) So today we're talking about the Babysitter's Club. (laughs) Sweet Valley High. I mean, I definitely have a Sweet Valley High mention uh, later. (laughs) Um, You guys, Becky, Seth, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I think there's someone in here with us. I see someone sitting over there in the corner. You guys, you have to believe me. There's someone else here. You can't fool me. I'm not going to fall for that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I can tell you I've been visited by many spirits while living in this apartment. So <laughs> that's not really a surprise occurrence for me. Yes, it is now October, the spookiest month of the year, when goblins and ghouls walk the earth. So we have brought one in to co-host with us. As you heard him intro himself, it's Daniel. Hi, guys. Hello. I was was tempted to jump in and say, Chris, no one will ever believe you. (laughs) You're my slave. (laughs) It's true, but I I I was going to reveal that later. now everybody knows. And why did we bring Daniel here? It's because while we've covered a lot of dark and spooky subject matter on the podcast previously with the Blair Witch Project, Scream, Stephen King. Now that's what I call music. (laughs) No. Alien, the craft. I was going to use cats as my example (laughs) of something that was utterly terrifying. In this episode, beware. It's the scariest topic of them all. Goosebumps. The book series Goosebumps. (laughs) No, the phenomenon... (laughs) Goosebumps are tiny elevations in the skin (laughs) caused by contractions of tiny muscles, each of which is attached to a hair. It's related to when a cat, you know, gets scared and its hair stands on end, so, like, it's supposed to look bigger and more imposing so it can ward off whatever's frightening You it. You brought up the wrong Wikipedia page, Chris. <laughs> oh, shit. We're talking about the book series, Again, Goosebumps. Again, we're not talking about cats. I have so many fond memories of getting goosebumps as a child. 
No, that's true. We are talking about the <laughs> horror anthology series created by R.L. Stein, which has taken many forms. A TV series, feature films, video games, and... So, am I forgetting one? <laughs> Movies. <laughs> Books. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh. No, sure. I'm not familiar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, sorry. Mm-hmm. Send another language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've talked a lot on the podcast about watching things and listening to things and occasionally having cyber sex with 90s heartthrobs, but we have not really <laughs> talked very much about reading. But we can read, and we do read. <laughs> and we did wow. read as children. Yes. We don't want to brag, you guys, but... <laughs> And the reason that we brought a fourth on today is because uh, Daniel also can read and did read. <laughs> I did. I still do sometimes. Yeah. Specifically the Goosebumps books. I think you're like somewhat familiar with the series. Yeah. <laughs> I am uh, I have a Goosebumps podcast that I host with my twin brother called Welcome to Deadcast, which is, of course, an allusion to Goosebumps number one, Welcome to Dead House. And we go through each Goosebumps book and corresponding TV episode and the movies as well. Did you consider the title Say Cast and Die? <laughs> um, we didn't, and I'm, it's going to haunt my dreams. <laughs> it's really, um, yeah. You could have like an after show where you talk about how the episode went. Yeah. And call it that. We could. Yeah, we occasionally bring like super fans of our topics on. We've had many super fans for our Simpsons episode <laughs> and Labyrinth episode, but I think you're the most accomplished super fan oh, we've had on because we've devoted many hours of podcasting yes. to. This specific topic. It's a huge chunk of my daily life. <laughs> How far I, in have you gotten? We uh, we just recorded Deep Trouble 2, which is 58. Oh my god. Yeah. Holy How many are shit. there? There are 62 of the original series, but then there are many more after that. But I think the total currently is 283, I think. Holy cow. Something like That's- close to that. Wow! Yeah, that's they like still, Pokemon they levels. Wow! Arl Stein still writes them, and they keep they they haven't. They He's haven't still stopped. alive. Yeah, you should follow him on Instagram and Twitter. He's very he's very funny. He really is. Is Arl Stein taking a lot of good photos on Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I, he's so weird. He's such a weird, kooky. He's like a kooky my old omelet man. was very spooky. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of spooky omelets. (laughs) Today, as an opening question, I'd just like to ask my co-hosts about their history with books. Were you an avid reader as a kid? Did you have a favorite book or series? I think we might know one of the answers for someone who's here today. (laughs) And also, like, how do you feel like your taste in books as a kid taps into, like, your other, like, pop culture persona that we have gotten to know so well on this podcast? That's a whole lot of question. Yeah. I would definitely characterize myself as having been a big reader as a kid, beyond just what my indoor child personality would suggest. I got on AOL and, like, the internet relatively early in my life as well, but reading really was, like, my biggest hobby when I wasn't hanging out with my friends. In elementary school, I would, like, pride myself on reading books that were, like, really advanced for my age and, like, in terms of fantasy, sci-fi, horror, basically all of that kind of side of the things in fiction that I really love, like, other than comedy, I would say, came from reading books and getting really into books. So yeah, I mean, it's like my reading habits definitely help define like my kind of taste in all kinds of other things, especially movies and stuff like that. Did you have any favorite series of like, sci-fi? Or yeah, I or really adored A Wrinkle in Time and that whole series. Like it, it was... Uh, written in a way that was not childish or kind of very specifically geared 
toward um, younger reader tastes. So I really geeked out on that aspect of it. Um, and, and also I just really loved the story and how it dealt with really fantastical or how it dealt with really human emotional issues and relationships in a way that was very fantastical and wild and over the top. Cool. What about you, Becky? I actually don't think from what I recall that I was a very big reader up until I was like seven or eight. Like, I think I was pretty like indifferent about it. And then my neighbor gave uh, me a bunch of books for my birthday that were written by Beverly Cleary Yes. Um, uh, Ramona Quimby. Yep, Ramona Quimby. Page (laughs) eight. There was Ramona and Beezus. I have a whole list here. Ramona the Pest. Ramona the Pest. Ramona Quimby, age eight. Henry Huggins, The Mouse and the Motorcycle, Socks, Dear Mr. Henshaw. Like, she gave me a bunch of these books, and I remember being bored one day, and they were just sitting there on my bookshelf for a while, and so I picked one up, and I ended up, like, reading all of them, and then I remember being a pretty big reader after that. So I don't even remember who that neighbor was, but thanks. (laughs) 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 Thanks for that lovely gift. I have to credit also the Scholastic Book Fair. Yes. (laughs) Gotta give a shout-out. So are you guys familiar with the Scholastic Book Fair? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, a little bit, I would say. So for our readers who maybe I don't do they still have this? It was just it was a it was two I'd like things. to believe they don't have it. <laughs> I would hope they do. I'd like right? to believe they be don't, but I think it's still around. It's all yeah. just on an I iPad now. now. Right. Well, well, yeah, it's like Kindle PDFs. It's like everyone w- webcams each other looking at books. There are two th- <laughs> ways for the Scholastic Book Fair. One was the actual like they brought in the books into your school and it was like set up like a little bookstore and sometimes there'd be also be like calendars and posters and pencils and pens and erasers and in addition to all these books and you'd go nuts and everybody loved it back then <laughs> it was, it was so everyone's favorite fun. day of confirmation school. i went nuts because you would you like know? get like money like from your parents and you'd be able to like <laughs> i remember i would not only would buy goosebumps i loved the babysitter's club and i would always buy like a puppy poster <laughs> or like some sort of animal calendar <laughs> as well and pencils and like a pencil case like all that kind of stuff and it was great i loved it and like sometimes they would have like if it was around like Father's Day or Mother's Day, you'd also get your like your mom or dad like a gift at the Scholastic Book Fair, or you, or they had like sh- uh, like sheets of paper that they would distribute like with like a list of all the books you'd want. And yeah, you'd, like so order that. That yeah. was the Scholastic Book Club. Got it. Okay. And so the it, fair, yes, the fair was yeah. the other one. They're, yeah. There's don't the- confuse the club <laughs> with the fair. Seriously, let's help define our terms here to really give a good knowledge base to our listeners. The club would distribute. It's, I don't know if it was like monthly or quarterly or what, but you'd get it was your, every like, day. <laughs> in my heart, it was every day. But you would get like the kind of catalog of all the latest books and also like all the classics that were you were like, if you haven't read this, check it out. Just seeing the Red Scholastic logo mm. mentally and emotionally just put me through this time warp and just a wormhole straight into my childhood nostalgia, like wrinkle in time. I know I ordered from the Scholastic book club like from that catalog and a lot of those books that i read and again just really loved goosebumps included i had discovered because of that catalog that the teacher would just hand out in class
class every once in a while and be like, figure out what you want to order from this. The Scholastic Book Club also totally affected my taste in comedy because that's where I first got the completed like books of Calvin and Hobbes cartoons and Foxtrot, The Far Side, and Garfield. That totally affected my taste in comedy and really like steered me toward much more absurd comedy that later like bled into my taste in movies with like Monty Python and all of that. Yeah, so that was a big deal, the Scholastic Book Fair and Club. As far as the books that I read, like I said, I, I really did love Goosebumps. I had not all of them because I didn't know how many there were. I'm sure I aged out before like they were done. Same. They're still <laughs> not know? done. So <laughs> right, yes. they're not done. Yeah. So <laughs> I maybe maybe in the 30s is around when I aged kind of out of it. Um, oh, in your 30s? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I loved the Babysitter Club books. I like, me and my friends would like have our own Babysitter Club. Like we wouldn't actually babysit. Babysit. We were just kind of role playing. You were missing a key ingredient of the babysitting. Club. No, we went in. Well, no, like I. So was, it was a club. So I was Don because I had long hair at the time, and I loved California. And Don was from California, and uh, and she had like a secret hideaway in her house, and I kind of had that in my house too. So I loved those books. I read. I mean, I own so many of them thanks to the Scholastic Book Club. Like my I, my bookshelves were filled with Goosebumps and Babysitter Club. As far as any other books, I liked Scary Stories to tell in the dark yes. hell yeah I don't know and just like Beverly Cleary I had like all of Beverly Cleary's books some Judy Blooms. I think my favorite book when I was younger or like maybe more like age 12-ish was A Tree Grows in Brooklyn which was one of the first like a more adult books I read but as far as like it like having anything to do with my reading habits now no <laughs> really yeah, like, I'm really kind of, like, picky now as an adult what I read, because I love to read, but I'm just really picky. If I pick up a book and I'm not into it in the first few pages, like, even, like, 20 pages, I'm just like, I don't want to finish it. Well, that's what I was kind of going for, because that sounds a lot like you in movies. Like, yeah. I tend to finish <laughs> any movie that I start. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. I got 300 pages into It before I'm like, I hate this. And, like, and that was, like, a long... <laughs> that long. That book, that was only a third of that book, and I was like, I can't read 700 more pages about this. So, I love reading when I find a good book, and I'll reread some of my favorite books, but, like, I don't think it has anything to do with what I read as a child because just everything the subject matter is so different like I don't necessarily read horror books because I read Goosebumps and I don't necessarily read melodrama female friendship books because of the babysitter club (laughs) but do you sitting around (laughs) pretending to babysit invisible babies No, no, and we never role played actual babysitting. It was the meetings at Claudia's house where they would like make the schedule and like <laughs> accept the phone calls for. The Talk about missed opportunities. You like didn't even buy like little sacks of flour or something. No, no, it was the because that's when they were all together. Because when they would babysit, they would be apart. apart. So it was the meetings at Christie's house. It sounds more like Claudia's a babysitter's where, fair to yeah. me than a club, but whatever. Anyway, that's bad. <laughs> I read everything. (laughs) I think it's funny, like, talking to you guys about this because we had pretty different experiences with, like, movies as children, I think. But, like, this was sort of a limited number of books that were actually, like, for kids and in this scholastic thing. So we all know all the same books. Mm -hmm. So I read, like, The Boxcar Children was one of my favorites. Um, Hardy Boys. Banicula. Oh, Banicula! The celery stalks at midnight. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh, the title! Occasionally, I'd slip in a very gendered title like Sweet Valley Twins or Babysitter's Club. Usually, the kid sister. I don't think I was old enough to be a babysitter. (laughs) Oh, I also read the kid. Oh, God, yeah. 
I had at least like one of those books. Um, I also read Beverly Cleary and some Judy Bloom. This is why I wasn't good at Nintendo, just because <laughs> I was always reading these books. And see, I didn't read any of the Beverly Cleary or Babysitters Club because I was working the thumbs on the NES. <laughs> so again, this this is all putting a lot of bricks into place for us. My thumbs were very active when I was reading and turning pages. So. Oh, that's fair. No, that's fair. Yeah. So I'm going to save a lot of my reading history for a possible future podcast that we may or may not do. But when I was thinking about the Goosebumps books, the books that I read as a kid that came to mind for some reason were Bruce Coville's My Teacher is an Alien. Yeah. Yes. Book, absolutely. And The Indian in the Cupboard by oh, Lynn. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love those. Coville also wrote a book called Jeremy Thatcher, Dragon Hatcher, which mm-hmm. I always thought was a good one. That was one I never read, but I always remember I the title. I that one. Oh, it's, well, go back and... <laughs> and for whatever reason, like, Where the Red Fern Grows was another one of those titles where it was like, I would always remember the title and be like, oh, it's that book, and just never get around to reading it. Mm-hmm. When I was thinking about how this relates to, like, the kind of movies I like, I found it funny that, like, those books were very cinematic in a way. Like, My Teacher is an Alien feels like a movie. Mm-hmm. And... It feels like the faculty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. Almost exactly like it. So I think I always had, like, kind of a high concept taste in... <laughs> In those kinds of stories, like, I really feel like even the books that I liked as a kid were basically just preparing me to like movies in a way. What about you, Daniel? I'm connecting with everything you guys are saying strongly. I was such a big reader growing up. And when it was Christmas time, the first Christmas I can remember, I was probably three or four, just under the Christmas tree was just books. Like, my brother and I both loved fairy tales. Like, we were voracious readers. And we had the Scholastic Book Fair. We had the Scholastic Book Club. And I was obsessed with both of those things. (laughs) We also had, in kindergarten... Tell me if this rings any bells for you guys. It was like a Pizza Hut sort of reading challenge kind of thing. Maybe this was just North Carolina. But you would I, get like... N- I remember that at something like that at some point. My library had reading challenges, but I don't yeah. remember Pizza Hut. It was like a thing that they did with our school or something, and it was, you'd get this button that said Pizza Hut on it if you read a certain <laughs> amount of books, and then you get like a pizza. And it's just I like... I want to say that I do remember that, actually. I, I don't remember the details, so. but that is honestly, I can smell I the pizza. All the details. Like, no, actually, that's pretty much it. There's a pizza. But yeah, very, very early on, I was reading Stephen King the same time I was reading Goosebumps. That's crazy. I started, wow. I started way too early <laughs> yeah. reading Stephen King. Way over my head but I was like and before I even started reading Goosebumps I read Fear Street mm-hmm. oh yeah and, I read a couple of those and also some of there was the Arl Stein also had the Babysitter not, not to be confused with the club but the Babysitter no 1, club. 2, 3, it was 4 it Babysitter's Bean Club right? yeah, <laughs> yes it was and he also had like Blind Date and some other standalone just sort of thriller books and that was what I started with and were those at the same time as Goosebumps yes. or uh, oh okay this is like 92 1992 yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I sort of was like, all right, I'll read Goosebumps because it really matched my interests and it was more appropriate reading level for me. But I was like reaching for the stars with like I, what I, the <laughs> horror that I wanted. But also, I really loved Ramona Quimby and I loved Bruce Coville. And the first books I remember being really into before Goosebumps was Sideways Stories from Wayside School. Yeah, love that one too. And that just and like, Wayside School is falling down. Yes, it just like it just blew my mind, and it was like connecting with something that 
like growing up in stupid old North Carolina, I was like, no, this is weird and out there and makes no sense. And it's kind of scary and ridiculously silly. And that's what I really connected with. And that still sort of like lives in goosebumps in a way. But to the, I mean, I still mostly all I read today is horror. I mostly just read Stephen King and I've still like Ray Bradbury and things like that. But I also still read Goosebumps and um, that will probably never change. What made you want to do a Goosebumps podcast? So my brother and I together share the collection of Goosebumps books. They live at my brother's apartment, but... Do you have visitation rights? On well, so this is, this is going to sound very strange, but this is my life. When my brother and I would get like sort of stressed or just need to like run away from real life, and this is, this is like maybe 10 years ago, we would lay out all the Goosebumps books on the floor in order and create so they covered all the floor and then we'd take turns I would do the odd books and my brother would do the even books and we'd read out loud the front and back cover and it would take about three hours (laughs) and that was just like our weird (laughs) crazy (laughs) ritual that we would just do to sort of like de-stress and I don't know why we did it and we found ourselves still talking about Goosebumps books so much (laughs) and when podcasts became a thing that was present in our lives I think I always thought growing up that I love Goosebumps and I wonder what it's going to be when I get older, right? Like, what am I going to love just as much? What am I going to be as obsessed with? And it turns out it's just still Goosebumps and that's just how it's going to be. <laughs> so Ma- Ma- Matthew, my, who's my brother, we just looked at each other and said, all we do is think about and talk about Goosebumps when we're with each other. We might as well just make a podcast and if no one listens, that's fine. But like, if we're not going to do it, then who is, you know? <laughs> so we started it four years ago and we're going to go all the way through. You know, we're just going to go all the way. And, you know, we have some listeners, which is great. But (laughs) So have you done an episode that is just your de-stressing ritual spell (laughs) of reading the covers? We incorporate that into every episode. Okay. So we start off our episodes. They do it every episode, all (laughs) three hours. Yes. When I said we have listeners, we have two, and they just are really dedicated. (laughs) Um, No, we, we go through each book, and we read the front and back cover to start off. Nice. In a silly sort of yeah, way. Yeah, you guys go book by book, right? We so, go bu- we go yeah. book by book in chronological order, but then and then we do the corresponding TV episode. I don't know if you can answer this, but what is your favorite Goosebumps book? My favorite is Night of Living Dummy. Wow. For many... I, I mean, your favorite we'll talk bump? about it. Yeah. For many reasons. <laughs> I just, like, I... It, it sort of perfectly encapsulates the, like, nasty, weird sort of sense of humor that I think R.L. Stein has... combined with a ridiculous twist it like lives in like a friday the 13th canon for me because it's in a way because spoiler alert i guess but the whole time the villain is not slappy right yeah like the whole time it's mr wood but everybody thinks like oh that's slappy but he's not the villain the whole book it's some it's another dummy which i think is so funny and weird that slappy's become such like a iconic goosebumps figure but in the original night of the living dummy he was not the antagonist yeah it's very the and the weird. the book is twins i'm a twin uh, seven's my favorite number. I felt like Slappy looked like me when I was little. I was him twice for Halloween. I just like really connected with it. Yeah. For our listeners, Daniel is about two feet tall yes. and made out of wood. Wait, <laughs> so would your brother pretend to be the ventriloquist and you would be the dummy no, for Halloween? He, so, my, so my brother... So, so my, my Becky. Becky. It's a messed up home life you're imagining here. What, what my, my brother really... And I really like it too. It's one of my favorites. So my brother really connected with the Haunted Mask 
mask, so he would be Carly Bath. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to need not, photo proof of, of these All right. things. Oh we also did that la- last year for Halloween. We redid it. We redid it. I we were slap. I was slappy beautiful. and he was Carly Bath. I love it. Mask. Yeah. I thought it was funny, like, preparing for this podcast, just how little we've actually talked about books. Only a couple of episodes have really touched on that, like Jurassic Park and Stephen King. But, like, for me, at least, like, books were as formative or probably more formative on my childhood than movies. I think because the kinds of movies I was watching as a kid were, like, Look Who's Talking and The Wizard, (laughs) uh, a lot of them, and, you know, not the highest quality. So, like, the quality that I was actually getting was mostly coming from books. And then, like, later I was like, oh, movies can also be good. I think it's because it takes longer to read a book than watch a movie. (laughs) That's why why we haven't done it yet. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. But I just thought it was strange that it hasn't even come up more and that I hadn't even thought of it in the same way because we've talked so much about how what we were watching when we were kids, you know, shaped us. And then I was like, wow, there's this whole aspect of my childhood that we haven't even discussed in now 50 episodes of the podcast. Well, and I don't think it's just even you, Chris. I mean, it like made me kind of sad to have that same thought in preparing for this because it's like books and talking about books aren't really part of the fabric of our lives anymore. The way that our cultural conversation, whatever form that takes, plays out is really dealing more with books only in relation to being adapted into movies, like really successful movie franchises that make a shit ton of money. You know, like thinking of what the most iconic or kind of present books in the cultural conversation now are. It's like Harry Potter, maybe, at most. And like, if there's a big like bestseller or something that'll be part of the conversation for a minute and then we like move on to the insanity of the world falling apart (laughs) well yeah i think that there's a sense now that every book has to be a movie and probably is a movie or a show or something and it's like we don't consider books as just books anymore werewolf skin vampire (laughs) breath How I Got My Shrunken Head, My Hairiest Adventure. If these titles are familiar to you, you either need to seek immediate medical attention or you have encountered the work of R.L. Stein. Robert Lawrence Stein was born on October 8th, 1943, a dark and stormy night, one presumes, in Columbus, Ohio. I thought it was Ralph Lawrence Stein. I'm kind of disappointed, <laughs> oh, you guys. Wow. Nope. I, nope. Mm-mm. As a child, he found an old typewriter up in his attic, a haunted typewriter. <laughs> No, it wasn't, but it did get him to start writing at an early age. And in college, he edited a humor magazine called The Sundial, which I wish was called Calling All Creeps. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really just trying to work in as many Goosebumps titles as I can. You're doing a great job. Thank you. He then moved to New York and did celebrity interviews for entertainment magazines, by which I mean he made them up. (laughs) So he would just write an interview with Diana Ross or The Beatles and... uh, some woman who owned a bunch of magazines paid him to do this. So he'd do like three or four of those a day. Wait, he made up the interviews? Yes. He was like literally just speaking to Diana Ross, but she was not involved. Were they publishing them as though this were real? Yes. Whoa. (laughs) Fraud. I don't think these were high caliber magazines. (laughs) I didn't get any titles of them, but I thought that was pretty funny. Wow. And like, I, that's if fake they, news. Yeah, I'm going to do the same on. thing with my interview with R.L. Stein. <laughs> <laughs> but this was like probably the 60s and 70s. So, like, everyone was, was stupid then. No, it was just anything. harder to like check. Like, they wouldn't, it's not like the internet where someone can be like, hey, did you say this? Like, it would be in a print magazine. And if it wasn't nationally distributed, like, I don't know. How would Diana Ross ever know? 
She knows now. <laughs> she's listening to this podcast episode. And she's not happy. R.L. Stein, you'll get yours. You better watch out. Diana Ross swears it. I cannot wait for that Goosebumps book. <laughs> Diana Ross's revenge. <laughs> yes. Ross dressed for death. Supreme evil. <laughs> After that, he wrote a trade magazine for the soft drink industry. And then he wrote humor <laughs> books for kids under the name Jovial Bob Stein. That's right. Good old Jovial Bob. Jovial. Jovial Bob. Like the jovial. adjective Jovial. Oh, like Jovial. <laughs> Not Jovial. <laughs> I thought it was Jovial Bob Stein. <laughs> JVB Stein. <laughs> and he also created Bananas Magazine. <laughs> was it Bananas Quarterly? <laughs> Bananas no, Monthly? No, but it had fake interviews. I think it was Bananas, bananas Hourly. <laughs> he was real busy with that. You're bringing up more questions than answers. <laughs> That's what I do here. That's what He you also want. wrote movie novelizations for Spaceballs, Big Top Peewee, and Ghostbusters 2. Wow. What? Sure. Okay. I would also like to bring up something else that he created in the 90s that you may or may not be familiar with. You probably know about this, right? <laughs> I, and I may not. <laughs> I researched this too. Ready? One, two, one, two, three! You! Oh! You! You read, you read, you see who? You read who? Oh, me? No, you! Don't you see? Sometimes I'm worried that just the tune of Eureka's Castle is going to be my last dying breath. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, I'm going to go, like, completely senile, and then it's like, do you have anything last round? And my last, my last words are going to be, Eureka's Castle. <laughs> the second that I heard the beginning of the theme song, I was brought back to my youth, Again, like, where it's... I knew every line, and I can't even tell you that much about the show, except, like, I remember all those characters... Mm-hmm. And that theme song. I remembered them as they came up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I would, if you had said Eureka's Castle to me, I'd be like, what the fuck is that? But then every image of that was suddenly like, oh, like deeply seated memories. Watching yeah. that surfacing. is like seeing the covers of the Goosebumps books, where yeah. the artwork itself is just so specific and immediate that you're like, oh, all of it floods back immediately. Immediately. Yeah, so he developed the characters for that show, and so he kind of essentially created it. I don't think he came up with the original idea, but he's really responsible for a lot of that. And I guess it kind of fits with, like, that Bat character. Like, it feels feels in the same neighborhood. Was it Nickelodeon? Yeah, it was on Nick Jr. It aired from 1989 until 1995. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I definitely watched that in, like, childcare and... Like after school kind of thing. What a long run for Eureka's Castle. Yeah. Right? yeah. Where is my Eureka's Castle reboot? reboot. <laughs> the gritty. Bring it back. Starring Kate Blanchett. Yeah. <laughs> Pitch black reboot. Yeah, very raw and real. It'll happen. The Kardashian sisters as the three fish. <laughs> oh, God. Too soon, Becky. Too soon. R.L. Stein wrote his first horror novel, Blind Date, in 1987. And then Fear Street debuted in 
1989. There were 52 of those. So that was like for teenagers, basically. And I do remember being terrified by those covers as well. In July 1992 is when the first Goosebumps book emerged. From the grave. Yes. (laughs) It was summoned through a note found in his pocket. That's a Night of the Living Dummy reference. That's right. It was originally kind of conceived for girls, interestingly enough. It was only four books that they started with, but they became fairly popular. I Uh, remember at the time that it felt fine for me as a girl to read Goosebumps and and boys also read it. Like, Babysitter Club books, you said you read some, but it really wasn't for boys. I, it was very surreptitiously. Like, I was like, I'm not reading this book over here. Right. But, like, Goosebumps was, like, for everyone. Like, yes. everyone read it. So some of the uh, most classic titles of Goosebumps are Monster Blood, Say Cheese and Die, The Girl Who Cried Monster. And then there's a lot of, like, not-so-classic titles, like The Barking Ghost, mm-hmm. <laughs> The Abominable Snowman of Pasadena. Horror at Camp Jelly Jam. Yeah, they're they're very tongue-in-cheek, I guess, kind of. They definitely got a sense of humor to them. They're not trying to be too terrifying, I don't think. That's So, we keep using this word scary. I think the more appropriate term is spooky. Yeah. (laughs) Like, because to me, spooky implies that little comedic twist on it, where it's not, like, winking necessarily, but again, it's just the kind of lighter side of horror. You will probably not be surprised to learn that R.L. Stein often thinks of the title first and then comes up with the story around the title. I was not surprised by that. You may not also not be surprised that some of his books have been written in six days. <laughs> that long. <laughs> and his wife is his editor. Like, literally, she's like works as his editor. I have a process question for you, Chris. Uh, did R.L. Stein ever do second drafts of these books? He does extensive outlines. <laughs> They're, like, chapter by chapter, and he writes down the beats where the, like, cliffhanger will be, since so many chapters end on a spooky a note. Scare. The answer's probably no. I think the answer is no. <laughs> I'm glad we got there eventually, because that's kind of what I would suspect. <laughs> So, as we mentioned before, there are 62 books in the original Goosebumps series and about 4 million <laughs> sequels of various different stories. The last official Goosebumps book. Daniel, can you tell us what it is? The last official one? Yeah. No, I can't. Oh my oh, god, I stumped like, I think it's something with the Shaggity? It's Monster Blood 4. Oh, the last ofi- oh, yes. original? Yeah, sorry. Oh, please. You had to be more specific, oh, Chris. I'm sorry. Chris. Listen, number 62, Monster Blood 4, please. <laughs> It was released in December 97. So that was the original run was for about five years. And then the TV series debuted in October 95. It was the number one rated children's show for three years in the United States. So also a big deal. Goosebumps is the number two best-selling book series of all time. Harry Potter's first? Yes. Wow. (laughs) So Goosebumps got there first, but... (laughs) It is also the 15th most challenged series of the 90s, uh, meaning books that are petitioned to be taken out of school libraries and public libraries. So, uh, R.L. Stein joins Maya Angelou, Mark Twain, John Steinbeck, J.D. Salinger, Alice Walker, and Madonna in that group. Wow, yeah, when it was Scholastic Book Fair time at my school, I went to private Christian school, and they blacked out all the Goosebumps ones. You weren't allowed to order them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like blacked them out like with a Sharpie or like like stamped before Before they handed out the sort of like the paper sort of magazine catalog thing, thing, they would X out the Goosebumps. Is it because they involve like black magic or something? That's exactly right. Yes. Insane. Yeah, it's insane. That's insane. And nothing would stop me from getting my Goosebumps. (laughs) (laughs) The number one most uh, 
challenged book is Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Wow. So, yeah, parents did not like their scary, spooky material. This is so stupid. Fairy tales, like Hans Christian Andersen ones, involve, like, being cut out of a wolf and, but like, Becky, dying. his name was Hans Christian <laughs> Andersen, so it's okay. Ugh. I just, it's so stupid. Like, kids... Kids should have these things available to, like, test the waters of being scared, you know? Like, that's what fairy tales are. Also, there's nothing in a Goosebumps book that you wouldn't see on, like, a kid's TV show or movie. Right. Yeah. So it's, right. like... Besides that hardcore scene in Welcome to Camp Nightmare, where they go in the sewers and bang. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. There is that. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. I got that confused with it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think we had, that's the most ambitious crossover event in this episode so far. Well, that's what Stephen King is. It's just goosebumps with more fucking. <laughs> it was just more children having lots of sex in the sewer. Goose humps. <laughs> oh, Chris. So we've already talked a little bit about our history with Goosebumps, but I will say that I had all of these books up until a point, like I was a collector, just as I was with like VHSs and stuff like that. I think I was more into buying these books than reading them, because I think there are definitely some that I didn't read, but I know I had them all in order on my shelf. And at some point, I remember just kind of being like, you know what, it's been maybe six months since I read a Goosebumps book, but I'm still buying them at every book fair. <laughs> it felt like a personal like horror story that they just like kept coming, and I couldn't stop myself from from <laughs> buying them. And then eventually, I was like, I don't think this is going to stop. Like, I need to I need to stop this myself. Or the title of that book would be "You Can't Stop Your Shelf." <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like that. Yeah. Uh, so what about you guys? Uh, Daniel. <laughs> yeah. What's my history with this? Do you have anything else to add about your originally reading the books? Did you read the books, like, more than once? Yes. Um, <laughs> so I think when I was starting to get into Goosebumps, it was right around, I think Scarecrow Walks at Midnight had just come out, which is number 19. Or is it number 20? I'm going to embarrass myself. I think it's 20. Fact checkers. It's about about 20 books into the series. And I being um, similar to you, Chris, I like have to read all of something if if I start it. So I I decided I was going to start from the beginning. And my brother at the same time, we both discovered at the same time. So he started and just read the ones that he liked or were interested, Uh. interesting to him and sort of filled in the blanks and end up reading all of them. But I went in order and it was a very serious process for me and made it all the way through probably up until about cuz after goosebumps there was all at the same at, towards the end of Go- the original goosebumps series there was tales to give you goosebumps and give yourself goosebumps two other series <laughs> which are short one was short stories oh. the other was choose your own adventure and then after that was Goosebumps Series 2000 which was 25 books and i ma- i made it all the way through all of those like just reading them as they came out. And then after that, I sort of dropped off. And so did the book series actually for a little while. Mm-hmm. And then it's been running, it kind of popped up again. And now it's like different sort of iterations of it. Now it's like Slappy's World, which is a whole sort of separate series of Goosebumps books. But um, I was reading them as they were coming out and would read them multiple times. And again, this is all like this passion that was shared with my brother. So. We for some reason I I became assigned to the odd books and he would be the even book so I would get to read it first the odd book first and my brother would sit outside my door and wait until I was finished and then I would pass off the book and like vice versa <laughs> and Matthew said there was one time 
he was waiting for me to finish and heard me gasp at the like from my by myself <laughs> reading and he was like I know it's gonna be a good one because I heard you gasp at the end so I know there's a twist and he would go and we would read it right then like we would read it on the spot like sit in our like tear through it and read it all the way through and then we'd read it again and again that's really amazing and I think it's so interesting that you have this experience with your brother because reading is such a solitary thing for most people yeah seriously it seriously was for me like I would read a book and nobody was listening to me gasp (laughs) and I was an only child so no one was listening to me at all (laughs) but it's fun that you had that I wonder if that's part of why you're still so into it is because you had that shared experience and it wasn't just something that, yeah. you know, you had just completely to yourself. Yeah, we tried to start a Goosebumps book reading club in our neighborhood. We loved them so much. and We wanted other people to, like, feel the love. And we made a flyer. And we rode in our bikes and put them in every mailbox in our neighborhood. No, the one person, one one, like, family responded. We were probably, we were 10 or 11 at the time. And... We got we put our like phone number on the flyer and and there was one kid that showed up to our house and he was like eight so he was a little he was like two or three years younger than we were and it was more like his like mom came over and we like sat at the kitchen table with our moms and sort of like didn't say anything and then they left and that was like the last but we tried Aww. actively to like get this like a book club sort of going you know but it was really just the two of us that were like in it to win it you need to come find me because I would have been like first in line for a Goosebumps Seriously. book club I loved it do you guys have anything Goosebumpsy I, to add well so I mentioned I read a lot of them um I not only got many of them from the Scholastic Book Fair and Club, um, but I also would check them out from my school's library a lot. And so that way I'd, you know, get to read a lot of the ones that I didn't buy. Um, I definitely didn't read the Goosebumps series in order in any fashion whatsoever, unless it was like a two-parter, and then I would make sure to get both books and tear through them. I dropped off at a certain point relatively early, I'd say probably in the 40s to 50s. I was going to say I did too, and I feel like the series maybe jumped the shark a little bit in in the 40s somewhere. It does. The titles after that are just kind of like... Early 50s is is kind of Yeah, it's like it felt like it was spinning its wheels after a while. And as enjoyable and like fun as they were to read, it kind of felt like diminishing returns past a certain point because you kind of knew what the formula was going to be. You knew where the scare was going to come. At the end of the chapter. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of the chapter, that is. But then I also did kind of pick up a bit later with the Choose Your Own Adventure version series what was that called give again? yourself goosebumps give yourself goosebumps and yeah i i gave myself a couple goosebumps mm-hmm. but that was definitely the end of any kind of reading of goosebumps for me um and i'll talk more about this later when we address the show but i very much did not watch the television series i remember the like promotions of it and when it was like first being promoted what channel was that on fox mm-hmm. on f- wait on fox, fox? Mm-hmm, yeah like what day of the week it started off on fridays and then it, then it was saturdays yeah like a primetime show or like a um, morning so, show uh, l- well let's get into it the haunted <laughs> mask was a primetime special right before halloween and then after that it would air um for a couple weeks it was primetime and then they moved it to four, like four o'clock. And yeah, then that's it, when like kids come back. And then it was Saturday morning. That's so crazy to me. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely didn't watch the TV show and never saw the Jack Black movie. 
Uh, what about you, Becky? My favorite Goosebumps growing up was Say Cheese and Die, and I don't remember why. <laughs> it was the title. <laughs> it may have been the title. It's totally the title. I think that it the is. title and the book cover was what got me excited about the book or not. It's the scariest, I think, book cover. Like, it's very, it's kind of disturbing. Like, it's more disturbing than the content of that book or, I think, any of the books, really. is like, it suggests a much darker story than, I think, any Goosebumps it's a, story It's is. a Polaroid and it's a barbecue, but all the people are skeletons. Um, I remember some of the Goosebumps, I had had, like, the Goosebumps logo was, like, raised and had some Goosebumps. Mm-hmm. I can right? still, like, run my finger over <laughs> yeah. it in my mind and touch it. Like, I know Were what Were there secret like. messages embedded in it in Braille somehow? <laughs> no. I never figured that out. No? I just remember enjoying them, collecting them, talking about them at school, and I never watched the TV show. Like, ever. I never watched one episode. I think that by the time it aired, maybe I was growing out of it. So I never watched it at all until this podcast. Yeah, I don't think I knew that there was a show at the time. I don't remember being aware that there was a Goosebumps TV show that I was even consciously not watching. It's doing this uh, podcast, like just talking to people, like a lot of people mentioned the show. And I'm like, really? Like, I just was like on some other planet or something. Yeah, I honestly didn't know there even was a show. Yeah. And there was I mean, there was Are You Afraid of the Dark, which was shortly before that. Which and I feel like I a lot of people adore yeah, yeah. that show. That I, I actually would like play with my friends and do like the Midnight, Midnight Society, Society yeah. um, like their little club, basically. But yeah, that was definitely many years before Goosebumps was a show. So we're going to talk about uh, three Goosebumps books specifically, and we'll start with Night of the Living Dummy, which is number seven in the series. It was published in May 1993. The plot is uh, twin 12-year-old girls who are terrorized in the middle of the night by Mr. Wood. (laughs) Usually that happens to little boys. No further context needed. (laughs) We're starting with this one because it's probably the most iconic of the Goosebumps books. It has the most well-known villain, although also not necessarily in this book, but it introduces the character of Slappy. So what's the plan, friend? You must have brought me out for something fun. Terrorize the locals? Destroy the town? Let's get silly! You guessed it, Slappy. I'm going to destroy Madison and I. I couldn't do it without you. Oh, shucks. You're giving me... Oh, what's the word? Goosebumps. <laughs> oh, my God, he's so creepy. Uh, he's such a crack-up. Such a clever dummy. Who are you calling dummy? Dummy? So, Daniel, why don't you lead us off on some discussion of this novel? Of of this classic? Yes. So, this book features, like, green bubblegum chewing twins, Chris and Lindy. But what every good Goosebumps book has is a protagonist and then a sibling who's annoying. Yes. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, is a foil to whoever our protagonist is. And ultimately, Chris is our sort of protagonist here. Lindy, (laughs) one of the things I love so much about Night of the Living Dummy and about Arlstein in general is I feel like he has 
has like a lot of antiquated tastes in a way. Mm-hmm. And ventriloquism, <laughs> although it is an art that is alive, it is <laughs> on America's Got Talent. Yes, it, it it seems so dated to me. Yeah, and the idea that these two blonde like white girls who are like trying to be popular and the best way to do that is to do of like have a ventriloquist dummy. They have like dueling ventriloquist shows where one of them's doing the birthday exactly. party circuit and the other one's doing the so talent show. Lindy finds a du- a <laughs> dummy like in a dumpster next door to their house. Because, you know, they're going dumpster diving. They're 12-year-old blonde girls. What else are they going to do like They're walking through this house that's currently being built, and I think the very first scare of the book is, there's a kid in the dumpster, but it's slappy. And Lindy names him Slappy and becomes sort of like popular at school and at home for having this amazing ventriloquist dummy routine that she does. And some of Slappy's humor is like a little aggressive and he literally slaps Chris at one point. And, you know, it begins that sort of a trope of a Goosebumps book where there is an ominous evil force that is ruining the life of our protagonist, but no one believes them, even though it's definitely happening. Lindy has... Slappy and is like performing at kids' birthday parties and Chris is not satisfied with her junk jewelry collection. (laughs) So instead she wants to be a ventriloquist. So her father ends up getting her a dummy named Mr. Wood. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Wood becomes sort of the the main kind of villain for this episode. What's kind of interesting is all these weird things start happening with Slappy and Mr. Wood, and halfway through the book, Lindy admits that it's all her. That um, there's nothing supernatural and weird. This dummy isn't like saying horrible things and like kicking and slapping people. It turns out the whole time it was just Lindy because Lindy was, turns out was jealous of Chris and it's like, oh my gosh, we're coming together as sisters. And then that's when things start getting really weird. Mr. Wood, Chris's dummy starts doing all these horrible things and that all starts happening after Chris finds a slip of paper in Mr. Wood's, or I think it's his pocket that has these words that she reads out loud. Do you know the words? I do know the words. <laughs> what are the words? Karu, <laughs> Marie, Odana, Loma, Malanu, Carano are, is the words. That is correct. Thank you. And um, this is all I know. That's a mashup of the names Rosie O'Donnell and Maya Angelou. <laughs> You're correct. It's also my Gmail password. <laughs> now I have to change. Gotta change it now. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, Mr. W- Mr. Wood starts doing terrible things and there's Chris is performing at a school talent show. <laughs> And at the talent show, Mr. Wood takes over, like, and starts speaking on his own, makes fun of the principal, calls her fat, and starts spewing green liquid all over the auditorium. Horrible smelling, awful green liquid. And it's just so weird and nasty, and I love it. We've all been there. We've all... Every talent show I've ever been to, something like that has happened. There's some green liquid. That scene is very surprisingly visceral, because I read this book as one of the last... I read, like, maybe five or six of the Goosebumps books. And not a lot of them have, like, super that PC kind of like gross out stuff like that and I was actually surprised in this one that because the book spends so much time and like all the Goosebumps books spend so much time being like ramping up and then being like no like not really and then <laughs> it'll be like ooh something scary is happening nope it was just like her the whole time and then going into like something that's that gross and kind of horrific I don't know. It took me off guard and was kind of like, oh, this this is nasty. Yeah, and it's things that in the Goosebumps series, things like that 
only happened early on in the series. And slowly as time went on, the, the books got a little sillier and a little more accessible and kind of friendlier in a way. But like the very, the first 10, 11 books, including Haunted Mass, were like, there's some relatively dark stuff in there and some violence. Like, I don't know, Mr. Wood choking the family dog, yeah, like almost choking it to thing. death and like screaming stuff about like, I mean, this is the thing of the whole book and of Slappy is like a character. He just desperately wants to make children his slaves. That's what he keeps screaming about. Like, I want to make you my slave, which is so yeah, crazy. So okay, a couple things <laughs> need to be brought up. Um, I, I actually do think this is so emblematic of the best and worst aspects of the series because the sheer caucasity of all of this from the ventriloquism on down is just so apparent. But I do think that the kind of set piece of the dummy and also the like twisty turny question of is this just this person doing this or is this a supernatural force is kind of the one of the best aspects of the Goosebumps series because in setting up the characters these ways they're confronting human problems and especially problems that kids have expressing themselves in terms of fitting in and or like finding friends and like the haunted mask is another example of that but I think kind of at its best that kind of is it supernatural or isn't it makes it a lot more interesting and makes it better storytelling yeah, I find it interesting. There always is something supernatural in the story, like, at least as far as I know. I don't think that there's ever a Goosebumps where it's like, ah, it was just Lindy the whole time. There's always something. Yeah, and right. it's not like Scooby-Doo, where it's like, old man Cooper just had the ghost mask on. Right, so I find it interesting that he does spend so much time on these false scares. In my experience reading them, is basically, like, the first half of the book is all, like, false scares. Mm-hmm. And then the actual scary stuff starts happening in the second half. And I find it interesting that he spends so much time time, like, I would say probably 80% of the scary cliffhangers end up being like, oh, it's a dog, or, you know, it's my brother scaring me. So it's weird how much of the books and how many of the books all rely on these, like, false scares instead of just, like, jumping right into actually horror. horror oh, yeah. yeah. That's one of the main things that when my brother and I are rereading the books for our podcast, it just, like, tickles me so deeply. Like, when you get to these ludicrous chapter break scare moments that get more extreme as the book goes the books go along and they're always they're almost always fake outs and there's certain ones where it's like no exaggeration this is an example of one and then the monster jumped out of the closet and bit my head off and I died and then the next <laughs> book was like oh it turns out it was just my cat and my imagination like yeah. Yeah. it gets that ridiculous and that is so unacceptably amazing to me <laughs> like, so, you, so you like that I yeah. think that like I have just general thoughts about all these books because honestly all these books just felt the same to me very yeah. exactly As we're talking about, there's a very clear formula. It's always a kid's in a certain age range. Twelve. Twelve. <laughs> yeah, we can just the call age it range 12. is twelve and a half to twelve and three quarters. <laughs> um, what a crucial they're, time they're of change in life. Suburban kids, white, white. Well, <laughs> suburban kids. Yes. Um, where something happens, where older people don't believe them, or or yeah. their own peers don't believe them. Yeah, usually and both. Yeah, usually both. There is always chapters with cliffhangers that turn out to be pretty much nothing. Like in the beginning when I said it, oh, it's my cat. Well, I almost did that exact same <laughs> intro 
with like a tarantula or something. Yeah. So, yeah. And then twist in the middle. Oh, it was me the whole time. Your sister or your friend or it's fake. And then it turns out to <laughs> not be fake. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's the same thing. Like I have no problem with these books with kids reading them. There, I feel like there's nothing wrong with these books if you're 10 to 13 reading these. Like that's fine. I like that you can imagine these things. Like you can imagine what the mask, the haunted mask looks like or what the monster blood does. Or I'm totally fine with that. I think as an adult, I got nothing out of it. (laughs) And I was excited for this podcast. I was excited to reread these. And I was like, I'm not getting anything out of this. And I just felt like I read the the same book three times. Yeah, that's probably right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like as an adult, (laughs) there's just nothing there for me. But like, you know, when my kids are that age, like I'd be like, sure, read Goosebumps. Like, that's great. You know, it's a a great intro to horror and spookiness and thriller and and that whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I just want to echo all of that because that was exactly... I was in exactly the same place where I was like very excited to reread them. And then like rereading them, it was immediately apparent to me why it kind of trailed off for me relatively shortly, relatively quickly when I was a kid, um, because they are all the same. And literally rereading them, the only note I made was about the dummy calling the kids his slaves. Because <laughs> it's like, that is as antiquated as ventriloquism is, if not a lot more so. I totally agree. I think it is a great kind of entry point for read, especially like reading horror, and especially when you're at the age that's a probably a bit too young to be reading Stephen King uh, <laughs> and encountering sewer orgies. But it is kind of trapped in that amber of being really, really geared toward pre-adolescence. Like, I remember never being scared of Goosebumps, but I liked reading it. But I remember being scared of scary stories to tell in the dark, like Mm -hmm. that whole series, where, where like, I would be like, oh, I don't know if I want to read this before I go to bed, because something actually might be really scary. (laughs) Because it felt like in those books, which we should kind of do on the podcast one, We should definitely do that. I feel like those actually tap into real anxieties and fears that people, including adults, have. Like somebody being, you know, behind you in your car, like serial killers or being trapped somewhere. Well, and again, like for me, the the spooky versus scary thing, like even when it does deal with, even when the books do deal with real human issues and anxieties and insecurities and all that, they approach it from that like spooky side of things where there's still like an element of silliness and whimsy in it rather than like possession being the devil taking you over and like going the really dark actual horror route. I have a question for Daniel. Does anything or anyone die in any Goosebumps book? Yes. Mm, good question. So, but it's only early on in the series. Mm-hmm. Talking like n- the very first book, which is Welcome to Dead House. So just the first book? That's that's the only book I can think of where a character dies, yes. Who dies? So the whole town, basically. <laughs> <laughs> okay, start off strong. Whoa. Why it's did he only, go back from those it's levels? It's also the only book that um, explicitly mentions blood. What about monster blood? Um, human blood. Oh. Wait a minute. No, there's there's a moment. There was one thing in Camp What's-Its-Butt. Oh, Camp Nightmare. Welcome to Camp Nightmare. Yeah, there's there's a moment in Welcome to Camp Nightmare, but it's like the most innocuous, like, he's like handling a pocket knife and like, 
gets yeah. a, a pinprick or something like that. But even that really stood out to me because I, I even remembered back, like, you know, he would go full balls to the wall in terms of, like, alien blood, monster goop, yeah. essence of monstrous plants, like, any of that. That's a but, good one. Like, that was my favorite book of the series. But there were no, like, mentions of human organs and entrails. Yeah, there's and, so, like, gore. Right, right. Welcome to Dead House, the only book I can think of that has, like, gore as, like, a scare hmm. sort of moment. And there's stuff, I think, Say Cheese and Die has... There's a weird dream sequence or something, right? Because no one or, dies in that book, right? Or no, that's no. Welcome to Dead House has a weird, like, creep, really creepy dream sequence where the few. family is, like, eating at dinner or something, but they're yes. all skeletons, mm-hmm. and it's actually, they're, like, like, very, eating like... bones, but yeah. there's... Uh, and in Say Cheese and Die, there is... Where there's somebody steps on a nail that goes through a foot. I think say that is that again, one. But, um... It's it that sort of like violence or like um you know like a sort of like graphic I'm using air quotes content doesn't last much past the first ten books in any way shape or form and mm-hmm. death just welcome to dead house and, and also it's like kind of when that is done that violence kind of doesn't really end up having consequences. Or not like lasting physical consequences, you know. Yes, it may that's, like that's, change their mind or like oh, make sure. them have a new idea and, or something. And but. to and to be fair, the deaths that occur are not you know protagonists or their family. Mm-hmm. You know, the dog their dog does die, but becomes right. uh, like a creature of the night, sort of vague. Is this a vampire or a zombie? But after the first three books, I guess there were. I remember reading somewhere that there were um, notes back from. The powers that be saying that needs you need to like it's oh, a little too dark. I was curious pull, about that part of it bit. too. Yeah, and was that like a business decision? Was there any like public pushback? I think maybe it was because at the time there, you know, there was Fear Street, which is all that's like schlocky sort of stuff. That's teenager, teenager, everyone dies. It's murder, murder, murder. Mm-hmm. Oh. So that is coming out at the same time as Goosebumps. So, and I think in an effort to appeal to like younger kids and girls, you know, like and mm. like sort of a younger crowd, it's like, alright, let's make sure we know what this is. And then for Fear Street, you can like ramp up the you know, the pure mortal terror and Goosebumps, duh, it kept getting sillier and sillier as it goes along. And some books, like, aren't even scary at all. They're more like fantasy adventure, you know, very light. Yeah, there really are no consequences in these books. Almost all of them end basically resetting everything that's happened before. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's probably a couple where something is a little different, but usually, yeah, it's not like people are, like, losing, you know, loved ones or, and there's not a lot of, like, character growth in these books either. They're not really that much of moral lessons I don't think like a lot of horror movies can be or allegories they're more they kind of use those tropes but I don't think that they use horror in the way that like more teen and adult horror does to like really tap into emotional you know emotional real life traumatic subject matter there's even it's most of the books you know it's a white kid with their white brother or sister and their two their mother and father you know is there's there's a couple only a handful of books where it's a single parent or I remember one book referring to like, oh yeah, my parents were divorced and now like I only see my dad on weekends. And I was like, oh my gosh, how like forward thinking for Goosebumps, you know, like showing other families. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Cody Matthews. (laughs) (laughs) 
who is the male friend in this. But, like, he's oddly described, like, very specifically, which is not something that R.L. Stein does very often. And he's described as with white blonde hair and gray eyes, and he always looked as if he were deep in thought. He just really seemed like quite the teen heartthrob. Sounds like an emo twink to me, but okay. Well, same thing. R.L. Stein has a very specific way he describes his characters. It was often in Fear Street, but he would describe girls with very, what, dramatic lips, I think it was is hmm. one thing he would say. Mm. Serious eyes and dramatic lips. <laughs> and if a That's char- an episode title right there. And if, a, if a character thinks another character is like attractive, they'll say, I think he's awesome, or she's really awesome. It always like, makes me laugh. It's like, he's totally awesome and he knew it. Just the way he walked was awesome. (laughs) I was like, oh, you mean sexy is what you mean. (laughs) Your dramatic lips and serious eyes. Yeah, I could find that he was like codedly like saying like, this is the hot boy. Right. Like the brooding hot boy. (laughs) Yeah. But like not really saying that. Like I was like, "Hmm, you're drawing some attention to this boy. Mm -hmm. Even though like the boy doesn't really even come back into the story, but. He sounds awesome to me. Yeah, he's real awesome. (laughs) So how does this compare to, like, actually being a twin? Are you constantly (laughs) playing jokes on each other? It's exactly like it. Duped Uh, by wooden dolls at every turn. Yes. How many times have you, like, one-upped each other on dummies? On dummies? Countless times. We've been through so many dummies um, and so many antiquated hobbies, like, countless. Um... Matthew and I both, I think we liked that the protagonists were twins, but Matthew and I both were, and still are, such obnoxiously well-behaved children <laughs> that there is very little, like, competition. Like, we do not have a relationship that re- that resembles Chris and Lindy's competition. We just, like, really love each other and like exactly the same things and would never pull, never pull pranks, never pretended to be each other, never pretended to switch classrooms, fake people out. We never did anything any of that stuff like at all yeah the kids in these books are real assholes that was one of <laughs> yeah. the real like there's takeaways. a lot of bullying in these books yeah oh, that's in yeah. the haunted mask right oh, yeah 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 haunted yeah the and whole a lot though. of siblings too like you mentioned that earlier but like it's there's a lot of sibling rivalry mm-hmm. in these books it's not just like teasing it like it's like they're pretty like fucked up stuff like um like pulling all the stuff out of the fridge and then like yeah. And putting all the jewelry in there in this book and then, like, pretending, like, you know, not even, like, when the parents come in and be like, we don't know who did it. It's like, that's a, a kind of a, like, that child seems like it needs to be, like, taken to a specialist. Like, the, I'm there's, a, a, there's a surprising amount of that stuff, I think, reading the books back where you're, like, looking at some of these characters and specifically with some of the, bo- like, the, the stuff with Carly Beth is, you, you know, not fun, but there's there's some, uh, there's one book where um, a character is, it's uh, Monster Blood 2, where a character's beaten up so badly by a bully that he said he, he looks at his face in the mirror and it looked like a bowl of mashed potatoes. Mm-hmm. Where he was like, I, I, I was so beaten up that I like, I, my wow. face was disfigured. And I was like, um... Is this okay? But also, like, Carly Beth is really shitty to her friend. Like, it's like most of the relationships on all levels in this series are kind of dysfunctional or toxic in one way or another. And, like, then there's the other, um, the... Which book was it with the dad has the laboratory in the basement? Stay out of the basement. That's yeah, like, like the stay the, out of the basement. The TV episode is like, oh, this is an abusive father. Yeah, like it's a <laughs> yeah. toxic, it's yeah. a really abusive and toxic relationship on a parental child level too. Like it's 
almost all of the relationships are really broken in some fundamental way. Yeah, it's really true. I mean, all of the books are centered around families, but they're always kind of bad families. <laughs> like, the parents never believe their children, even when there's, like, a fair amount of evidence that something strange is going on. Like, <laughs> like the werewolf of Fever Swamp, for example, where things are being mauled and, like, attacked in the middle of the night, and... The kid's like, there's a werewolf, and the parents are still like, no, there isn't. Yeah, there's like a crazy hermit in the woods who's dangerous. It's like, no, 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 he's just eccentric. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's just awesome. Yeah, he's totally awesome. And the parents just never take their kids seriously and are (laughs) constantly like undermining their kids. And there isn't a lot of actual emotional involvement between siblings or between parents and children. It's all very kind of antagonistic in a way. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So I guess that will lead us into Welcome to Camp Nightmare, which is book number nine. It was released in July 1993, so it was just two months after Night of the Living Dummy. This was, I guess, they had gotten onto their monthly schedule. The plot is as follows. The forbidden bunk beckons to the curious boys at Camp Nightmoon, where Uncle Al has a surprise in store. <laughs> That's oh, yeah. all, that these is also the synopsis great. of a gay porn. <laughs> yes. I'm just trying to make these synopsises sound as dirty as possible, even though the they books are great. Yeah, well done. They sound awesome. <laughs> so I chose this book because it has a twist ending and because it was the one double twist ending. Yeah. It was the one Goosebumps <laughs> book where like when we were talking about this podcast, like this book came into mind and I was like, that blew my mind. And I remembered exactly Pretty what really? twist was. <laughs> yes. Wow. Does a double axel and the judges gave it a ten. Yeah. So we are spoiling all any and all Goosebumps books on Sorry. this podcast. Sorry. <laughs> you guys had a bit of a head start to read these. Come yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> the story is about uh, Billy, who is going to a summer camp called Camp Night Moon, which is then dubbed Camp Nightmare. And pretty early on, weird things start happening. Like, I think this is different than a lot of the books in that I think there are some pranks, but it has more legitimate dread, I think, in the very beginning. Because, like, immediately, like, their bus stops and the driver's acting weird and then they get attacked early on by, like, monsters. Creatures that are... It's a little confusing. Well, yes. and there's like there's like an approaching creature attack that gets warded off by shotgun. So it's like there's like violence in just that sense super early on. What did you see that? <laughs> Latest technology freaks them out every time. Hi. I'm Uncle Al, the camp director. Uh, Sorry about the welcoming committee there. We get a lot of wildlife up here. It keeps you on your toes. What was it? That was Saber. Who's Saber? Uh, Saber is not a who. It's an it. Just keep to the trails, and it won't bother you. Okay, grab your duffels, let's go. We got a mile walk in. The kids are all pretty convinced that something weird is going on, and yet the older teen camp counselors and Uncle Al, who who runs the camp and is actually not anyone's uncle, as far mm. as I can tell, yeah. you know, constantly deny that anything strange is going on. But in the end, it is revealed that this is all a charade for Billy because his parents are explorers of some kind, like government agents, and they are going to a very dangerous place. And so Billy needed to pass a series of tests in order to, it's kind of like a training for for going on the mission with them. 
And the place that they're going is Earth. What? Great twist. <laughs> yeah. So I remembered this twist because I was so confused. It feels like the end of the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. That makes no sense. Yeah. It's just the final button. And you're like, wait, huh? <laughs> it's not like all of them had like tails at the end or something, you know? Like, <laughs> Right. Because when I was thinking, okay, so all these characters are aliens. But then I was like, but didn't they describe them as like looking like humans? And like my whole mind was blown. And I was like, what if they were all just like weird blue? creatures the whole time and so then when I was rereading this book I like remember that ending and I was like maybe this isn't the same book because I I was like that ending wouldn't make any sense here if they all weren't on earth and then it still was and it blew my mind again there's a there's a book later in the series called my best friend is invisible where the whole book it seems like it's a normal kid being haunted by basically a ghost and then throughout the book you figure out that the main character's parents were vague scientists and that they had this <laughs> beam of flashlight thing that they could see things and they shine the light on the ghost and the ghost is described as looking like a human being and they're like, oh, he's disgusting. And it's revealed in the last page that the whole time, the whole book, every character has been a monster with like five eyes and six horns and Arlstein just never described the characters <laughs> throughout the book and you know, the whole time you were just dealing with monsters scared of this human ghost. Why didn't they do it at the end of the night? Like, why didn't they say like, something about having three arms or, you know what I mean? Like, right. doing something well, like that. Yeah. And there's TV stuff for both my best friend is visible and for welcome to camp nightmare and it's just we're just human beings and they just happen to look up and where the moon normally is is just earth just like right there shouldn't they have like lasers coming out of i think yeah. if you like deeply think about most goosebumps <laughs> books there are flaws to be found yes i really can't stand any story where the entire thing is invalidated by a twist. There's certain twists they are like, spoiler, sixth sense. Like, it doesn't ruin the movie to know that Bruce Willis is a ghost the whole time. It It's like an extra thing. Yeah. like, I mean, But I don't like, like stories where the entire thing is invalidated. Like, it was all, it was basically all a dream. Well, mm-hmm. what, what's right. interesting about... <laughs> I'm such a nerd. What's interesting about <laughs> Welcome to Camp Nightmare is that the very first chapter, the terrain that they're traveling on is described, and it's sort of briefly mentioned that the ground is red and that the sky has a yellow tinge to it. And I remember uh. reading that being like, oh, it must be sunset. And mm-hmm. then these creatures that I don't have any reference to at all, as they're described, come forward, like alien creatures, and then you just kind of forget about it and the book keeps going. And for my brain, I was always like, oh, no, it makes sense, because at the beginning, Arl Stein described the ground as red. <laughs> and the sky is yellow so we should have known you know what I mean well but then why do they have a bus I don't know it doesn't make sense yeah I totally agree like they wave the magic wand in order to go poof look at the thing that just turned into a bunny that wasn't a bunny before that does nothing in most cases to deepen the characters to like put a different spin on the human drama parts of it so I don't think it's very artful storytelling in that sense well if if you're looking for artful storytelling. Goosebumps is not your destination. Right. And it's more like in most cases it it feels to me more like a Twilight Zone kind of thing. Yeah. This book definitely felt like that. In some ways like this book was a favorite of mine because I feel like it almost has a dream logic to it where like it Mm -hmm. so doesn't make sense that it becomes scarier like a a David Lynch movie or something because like there's a lot of things in this that don't add up. And they don't have to add up, though. No. He could have done anything, and it would have been like, it was, we were playing. Yeah. I mean, that's how they all kind of are, but 
I think one of the reasons that these books, in a way, don't work so well for adults is because they tap into fears that are uniquely for children and that you kind of would forget about. So, like, in this one, like, I guess it's kind of, like, about being homesick and away from your parents. And I liked that the stakes in this one felt different because it wasn't, like, oh, another one where the parents don't believe you. Like, this one, this kid is really on his own. And this is actually, like, a much more dire circumstance than I think are in a lot of the Goosebumps books. Like, these are a bunch of kids alone in the woods with pretty shady adults. Like, it seems pretty obvious that something shady is going on there. Yeah, anyone who self-applies the name uncle in any kind of authority situation, that should be a big red flag right there. I found that, like, it taps into a weird thing about childhood where you are so subservient to adults. Like, there's nothing you can do on your own. And if you are in a situation where adults are telling you, this is the way it is, this is what you have to do, you have to go along with it no matter what. As an adult, it's easy to say, like, well, why wouldn't you call the police or why wouldn't you, like, run away? Like, these kids, they're always walking into danger and they're never, like, doing as much as they should to keep themselves out of danger. But I really think that that is a very much a psychology of a child in that, like, children get abused all the time or, you know, see weird things. But they don't often, you know, like, feel like they can speak up or just, like, walk out of a bad situation. Like, they do kind of just stay there. And I I found that that was kind of interesting in these books that they followed that childhood psychology of like, you're in this situation. If your parents say everything's fine, like you can't do anything about it. Like that's the final word. Yeah, well, and I think you're spot on, but I'd put an even finer point on it is it's like, it really captures when we're talking about like 12 years old, like it captures the just pre-adolescent moment because it is like that last time in your life when you are presumed and expected at every turn to listen to and heed adults. And it is that moment right before you get any understanding of your own power, of your own self as a person, much less your own kind of ability to deal with situations on your own. I think it's really good writing and storytelling in that sense, because it really is keying in on these insecurities and fears that are still super primal and coming from your childhood and from the fear of abandonment by your parents or your family or your friends. But it's also kind of showing the moment in your life when there's a horizon to that. And before you discover all the real hideousness and darkness and craziness of the world. Yeah, there. it's actually interesting that the protagonists are all of that exact age now that I think about it because... They're not quite 13. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they're not because 11. It, it really is that mix between <laughs> childhood, which is sort of a mix of like anything can happen, things can be, you know, kind of magical. You can believe in monsters and stuff. And then when you're a teenager, like you're suddenly very like down to earth and you know, like, oh, that stuff's all for babies. So this is, like, a weird space in which, like, the children are transitioning out of this and they constantly are doubting themselves, seeing, like, something weird. They'll be like, the mask looked at me and you're like, well, why didn't you freak the fuck out right then? But it's because they still have, like, this tie to childhood in a way and they're still, like, kind of bridging that gap. And I think this book is kind of interesting because it does take place at a summer camp. I went to summer camp when I was in sixth grade. Seth, did you? Um, As listeners of the show will remember, I only went to summer camp basically for 13 years straight. In the winter, in the fall. Yeah. Yeah. Every every year during summer, I would go to summer camp all the time. Yeah. For me, it it wasn't even summer. I don't think it was during the school year, but we went away for a week and it was like this big, Mm. huge like ritual of like, it was basically like coming (laughs) of age. Like it was like, you will come of age of this week because it was like you were away from your parents 
pretty much for the first time for all of us or away from anyone's parents and with camp counselors who were the same age they were teenagers and like you had to do things like shower with other kids and it was like it was this kind of like scary like ooh like I don't know if I'm ready for that and so (laughs) this book like resonated with me in that in that it really felt like that is kind of a time when children are thrust into a sort of a pre-adulthood like as a trial run And that will bring us into The Haunted Mask, book number 11, which was released in September 1993, in which Carly Beth figuratively and literally loses her head on Halloween night. That's right. In in several different ways. Why don't you tell us sort of the the story of The Haunted Mask? So Carly Beth is our protagonist, Carly Beth Caldwell. The most scared girl on the planet is kind of how she's presented. She's scared by literally everything. She has two guys at school that sort of tease her relentlessly for how she's so easily scared all the time. And she has a best friend whose name's Sabrina. And Carly Beth decides that this year for Halloween, and alluding to the fact that everybody's 12, it's kind of the last year of trick-or-treating, right? Mm, speak for yourself. No, listen. Try- <laughs> well, we all know Becky and her perpetual Halloween. <laughs> she's had 400 Halloweens. Just as Seth has been at summer camp about 400 times Becky has lived through 400 Halloweens. I have always been at summer camp. <laughs> you guys are both Goosebumps books already. Like, you know, I'm going to write a book about both um, Yeah, pretty much every day of my life is <laughs> Halloween at this point, and including trick-or-treating. So yeah, but in the world of this book, she is tired of being made fun of and decides that this Halloween she's going to find a really scary costume and get back at Chuck and Steve who've been, you know, making her life miserable. She's going to fuck shit up. I love yes. it. It's a revenge plot. It's great. They yeah. put a worm in her in her food. And yeah, she eats, a worm. she eats it. And everyone laughs at her. They all, they're all going to laugh at you. They point and laugh at her. So forget the fact that her mother not only made a, a paper mache head of her daughter, but also um, <laughs> made oh, her... it's a plaster of Paris. Oh, actually. I'm sorry, plaster of Paris. Also, That's... whose mother didn't? Am I right, guys? Am oh, I yes. right? Of, co- of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, someone had to keep her company while you were off at camp all the time. <laughs> Yes, Plaster of Paris, Seth. You love me unconditionally, don't you? You never go to summer camp. Her mom also made her a cute duck costume. She goes. She <laughs> finds this store where there's a, a sketchy, creepy sort of shop owner, and she finds a back room where there are these truly awful, horrific masks. And one in particular really speaks to her that's green with big yellow eyes and sharp teeth. And she takes that mask, and she decides she's going to run around and scare Chuck and Steve that Halloween night. And not only does she put on that very scary mask, but she also carries around the plaster of Paris head on a stick like it was represented the old Carly Beth and when she puts on that mask she realizes she can't take it off and her voice changes and she becomes a literal monster and she finds out that the only way she can take off that mask is if she finds a symbol of love (laughs) from the shop owner and she doesn't know what that means but what she ends up using is that plaster of Paris head which in the book she shoves over her own head (laughs) Then, then the mask is able to be taken off and in the book I mean, in the TV episode, it's slightly different, but... That's very confusing, by the way. It is. is She, like, puts on her own face as a mask over the monster mask, but then the monster mask somehow is able to become... Exactly. It does make a lot of sense. It's like people who are able to take on a bra while also wearing a shirt at the same time. I (laughs) I can do that right now. (laughs) Well, because you're pretty special, Becky. (laughs) And that bra is your symbol of love. (laughs) So Carly Beth is able to take off the mask, and, you know, she's really found herself and learned all about herself that night and you know the ridiculous twist is that her little brother puts on the mask 
mask. And, and whoever puts on the mask can never uh, take it yeah. off. Yeah, you can only take it off once. You can only take it feels off like once. a weird loophole. Which but, technically yeah. the episode, TV episode, feels like more than once. But yeah. um, I'll let that slide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's just like a classic sort of Halloween tale, you know, and has a great sort of shocking, iconic cover, I think. Definitely. That was, it was one of the most like instantly recognizable for me. Yeah. When we were like deciding which stories to do, I consulted with Daniel because I was not sure. This was definitely a good choice because it's so iconic of a cover. I think it's a very classic like story. It takes place at Halloween. Like there's a lot going on with this. Like this feels like the ultimate. It's, it was voted Goosebumps the favorite book. Goosebumps book. And I think Arl Stein has said it's his favorite yes. of the series yeah. as well. This is one of the few Goosebumps, at least that I remember. I'm sure you can think of more um, where what's happening to her feels like a metaphor for like you know, she wants revenge. Yeah. And so she's becoming this bad person, which is this mask. It just feels like what's happening to her physically is what's really happening to her emotionally and metaphorically um, more than in the other goosebumps that I can remember. Yeah. Where like in Welcome to Camp Nightmare, it doesn't feel the same. Like what's happening in Say Cheese and Die, like it just doesn't feel like the the physical external thing matches what's internally going on with the character, but yeah, it, it does. And yeah. also like the, the villain, the shop owner guy, like has a connection to those masks that like is right. it the same in, it's the same in the book right it's, where it's, it's like similar his... he calls them the unloved or the unloved ones which were like his faces like it's vague but something he didn't love <laughs> so, like his it's own hilariously face, vague so to me other faces. in the book it's more like he's like i didn't love myself so right. i made these faces to like replace me but the faces change and warp and they reflect what's inside of me and hmm. you know it's yeah and it's like it's again very broadly drawn but that too the foe in it is then also a metaphor for the same thing of kind of not embracing yourself and of defining yourself by the way that other people see you this is one of the few books, I think, where the main character is actually driving what happens to them versus I think usually it's just like, I'm in a new town and then like all this stuff happens. But like the characters rarely put themselves in a bad situation. And that's like a classic horror thing is like often like people do something stupid like or like they're constantly kind of like going out into the dark backyard when they should just like call the police and in these stories like the kids all pretty much like they follow the rules pretty well they don't do a whole lot of like rebellious things the main ones and then there's always like the friends who are the assholes but in this one like it's very rare that the character is actually like for one like kind of bad in a way she's a little bit influenced by the mask i think you're supposed to think that like some of the masks evil is like seeping into her and causing her bad behavior but it's also like you can read it in different ways and that she's like kind of unleashing her inner self and that she has these like bad instincts and she's you know like really enjoying being evil and that's something that's it was just kind of shades of gray or not in very many of these yeah this is like mm-hmm. definitely heavy on the symbolism which a lot of books is like no it's just a scary monster you know? yeah Yeah, I really enjoyed the symbolism. I think, like, most Goosebumps books, this one is a bit messy in its storytelling because, like, there's too many, like, metaphors in this one. Like, she has her own head on a stick (laughs) that she's carrying around and is becoming, like, a monster in this sort of Jekyll and Hyde kind of way. And there's these other masks that end up flying around and chasing her, which feels like an, an unnecessary, like, third act kind of 
complication where it's like we were fine with just her being stuck in the mask but yeah that's um, too many notes after a while yeah but i did enjoy just kind of all this like stew of weird images of you know like looking in the mirror at yourself or having a double of yourself which is a very classic horror trope this one has a lot of like really great horror tropes that are kind of dumped in there i would say not super elegantly but in a fun way where like i had a lot of fun with this book and the episode now how much do you think the mask was inspired by this book (laughs) (laughs) it's on the mask and it changes you well it's green this came out uh, it's probably like less. It was about a year before the movie, so I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. Um, I want to talk about the TV show, <laughs> the TV <laughs> special. Yeah. The first thing I want to say is that I would totally love my kids one day to read Goosebumps, and because I think that even if it's really simple writing, it's it's good to read, especially when you're that age. Anything that you can read at that age is good. The show is kind of like lowest common denominator writing and filmmaking and acting and acting. And it was just so embarrassing to watch. For example, like when a kid is reading The Haunted Mask, they're imagining what the, all these masks look like. There's like, you know, some details, but generally like they can envision, you know, they can use their imagination. And then when you see this mask in the TV show, <laughs> it is like the stupidest looking thing I've ever seen in my life. To say nothing <laughs> of what they look like when the masks go on attack and start flying at Carly Bell. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it's like Nintendo 8-bit animation. <laughs> so there's a lot of leeway I give these books where I'm like, these are great for kids and you can use your imagination and blah, blah, blah. But watching this TV show was like embarrassing. And I was, I think if I had seen it when I was that age, I'd been like, this is stupid. <laughs> I mean, I didn't watch it as a kid, but I think it's better as an adult with like, it's, this episode was so campy that it was like, a pure delight for me to watch every (laughs) minute of it. Like, I had such a good time with this episode. And I watched, like, probably, like, five different episodes of the show. Yeah, like, my reaction wasn't that different than yours. It's, like, it's very cheesy. Sometimes they get some of the stuff. No. I was shocked at how like, honestly, just how bad it was. Well, it's Canadian. <laughs> well, Oh, is it? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, s- sorry to bring this up right now. Do we have to talk about how this is the most Canadian thing ever <laughs> created? This this, and Are You Afraid of the Dark are the two most Canadian TV shows that, of all time. Not once have I oh, seen anything yes. that is more mathematically or chemically Canadian than this show. So In Canada, the title was Afraid of the Dark, eh? <laughs> it's a... St- it's totally astonishing. So I I watched the episode for Say Cheese and Die First and Baby Ryan Gosling stars in it. And that should have been my first clue that this is a Canadian show. <laughs> because then I was watching more episodes and whenever they would say sorry, they would say it's sorry. I'm sorry. And I'm I was sorry. like, wait a minute. <laughs> And it felt, after a certain point, it felt like they were just writing extra stories into the script just to (laughs) amplify it. But, like, in most episodes, they say it, like, once or twice, and you're like, okay, you notice it. And then in this episode, it is, like, every other word is sorry or a boat or something. Like, I was... Cloudy Toronto. (laughs) Snickering in my bed last night aloud, like Carly Beth wearing the mask every time they said it. Don't! Carly Carly Beth, I'm sorry. Carly Beth, I'm so sorry. We need to go back to the province to make this right. Yeah, it's. <laughs> Let's get some free healthcare and <laughs> play some hockey. You know, we need to get some of our bacon. You know, the kind we have here. <laughs> Did anyone else notice the scene where she's first confronted with the guy at the Halloween store, and he, he's like, "What's your name?" And she's like. <laughs>
Who are you? Carly Beth. Who are you? Carly Beth. Carly Beth. Carly Beth. Carly Beth. Carly Beth, that's gross. Carly Beth, no. I'm sorry. I rewound that about five times. <laughs> that is acting. Acting. I also <laughs> want to talk about <laughs> R.L. Stein's prologue and epilogue oh for these specials. Hello, I'm R.L. Stein. I write the Goosebumps books. In a few minutes, you're going to see one of my favorite stories come alive. The Haunted Mask is a frightening Halloween story about a girl named Carly Beth. The horror begins when Carly Beth puts on the evil haunted mask, and it ends when she discovers there is nothing more powerful than the love of her family and friends. What's so scary about that? You'll see. He is the deadest delivery <laughs> of any human being. He to call it is. wooden is an insult to ventriloquist. He's a real Mr. Wood. <laughs> he, he intros, because these are specials, so Arl Stein is at the beginning saying, basically he's like, hi kids, here's a special. Ooh, it's really scary. <laughs> That's too animated, Becky. Yeah. Pull it oh, back. I know. Pull back. They are the best things about these episodes is Arl Stein's tr- wooden delivery so in one take, and he's just like, the scariest thing is not having the love of your family. And he's just like, his lip is quivering. <laughs> these are the best takes they could get. Oh yeah, so that was satisfying. the cream of the crop. It really is. It's. So I think satisfying. this was a Clint Eastwood production where he just like went with the first take, and every time they're like, "Okay, I can do it again," he's like, "No, we're good." Oh my god, it was hilarious. At least like I remember Stephen King would sometimes show up to like be in trailers for his movie adaptations. Well, <laughs> that was a very opposite. That problem. was yeah. That's he the was opposite way pole. too animated. <laughs> yeah. We will have to do a comparison. I'm just saying, at least Stephen King has some presence <laughs> in front of a camera. Arl Stein was like, you should have re- you should have cast somebody as Arl Stein presence to do this, really such as hope, Jack Black, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Jack Black. Yeah, those. I mean, I think this really comes through in the books as well. Is like he. He's the most dad jokey guy ever, especially in the Night of the Living Dummy series. Because he, I don't know, I read. Oh yeah, I mean, he lives him. like as I said, I'm uh, on Twitter and Instagram. It's just living dad jokes. <laughs> like, is that his Twitter handle at yes. Night of the Living as Dad? As a matter jokes. of fact, yes. <laughs> oh my God, you know, but like the on, honestly, Becky, the haunted mass is as good as the show gets. So I, <laughs> there are some episodes you should stay far away. from. It's true. I watched um, the Attack of the Jack Lanterns one. That Attack Jan- of Jack Lanterns is actually. Actually, can we talk about that? Because that was my favorite one. Attack of the Jack by far. Is such trash gold. It's, it's yes. it is it yes. is absolutely talk about wild gold. Twists. Do you like Piss poor these acting episodes like hate watching them? Like they're fun to make there's fun no, of. There's no hate anywhere near in my brain <laughs> with the goosebumps. But I absolutely enjoy to the deepest part of me the parts of it that are that do not make sense that are not good, that um, <laughs> are messy, that um, are thoughtless. I, there's just, like, such a... It's it's such campy pleasure for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It yeah. really is. It's just... Su- it's, and it's like, the, the, this episode, which is season two, episode 15, Attack of the Jack-O-Lanterns, is, like... Ludicrous. Campy and kitschy on many next levels beyond that. Becky, did you see this episode? I watched like half of it. I, okay, I, well I you should have stuck saw, through to the ending. The I saw the jack-o'-lantern face. Yeah. I just, I just, okay, like, so to it start didn't work with, for me. <laughs> to start with, the lead character of this episode is definitely a gay kid uh, with a savagely bad haircut. The first scene 
all of the dialogue of the first scene is him talking to his best friend and really unsubtly hinting that he's like deliberating coming out of the closet to his parents. And like the, the context of the conversation is talking about like, oh, well, we've heard it's dangerous to go out trick or treating, but he keeps talking about like, well, I don't know if my parents want me to go out. They might be unhappy with me if I go Sorry, out. Sorry, I have to less. correct you. To go out. <laughs> that's true. No, that's, that is. A very pertinent point. To go out trick-or-treating. So the kid walker goes out trick-or-treating even though he knows it's dangerous. And he goes really conceptual with his Halloween costume as a dark dark and and stormy stormy night. night. Oh god, I hated that. But he's actually dressed like a white version of Shaft who held up a (laughs) 7-Eleven. With a water gun? He's in like head-to-toe black and a black shiny faux leather jacket. You just reminded me that's when I started fast forwarding. <laughs> it's only 20 minutes. Again, you like yeah. you skipped straight through some magic here. It was in this moment as a super femmy tiny gay went way too fucking metaphorical on Halloween and just ended up confusing everyone that I realized I had never related to another character on screen more in my life. <laughs> Um, that was until we met the titular jack-o'-lanterns of the episode. <laughs> you, you connect with those guys? Yeah, no, I really Shame. did. No, I didn't at all. But it was just, it was, I, I found the double or even triple twist of this episode so much more entertaining just because of its sheer lunacy. It's, it's a Looney Tunes so episode. It's basically- it is bonkers. Something about being trapped in a land of eternal Halloween and trick-or-treat forever. Listen, Shane and Shauna, I know you two like this little game, but you're not scaring us. Yeah, take off those stupid pumpkin heads. They look fake anyway. Yeah, your little Halloween joke is over. It's basically fat people have been missing. This is it. Like, fat people have been missing in the neighborhood. So parents are like, we don't want kids to go out. Our two main characters go out. They're going to get back at some bullies. So they're going to scare the bullies. So they have two friends that um, are going to scare them. The two friends do not show up. Instead, two jack-o'-lantern alien creatures show up. Who are like these six-foot-tall monsters with scaly pumpkin heads and crab hands. Crab claws? They have Mm -hmm. crab claws. And they magically transport them to a world where you can trick-or-treat forever and ever and ever and ever and ever until they finally scare the two bullies off everyone laughs the pumpkins pull off their heads and it turns out the whole time they are ju- they truly were just the two friends that were supposed to show up but. if you're getting lost here that's correct and <laughs> it is right to be lost now and, and there's no trail of crumbs left to, to get and you it out turns out those two friends Shane and Shauna are also aliens from another planet bum, bum, who are just there to visit but it also turns out they are just to visit so they can eat fat adults and um, but don't worry they don't eat little kids and they get in a spaceship and fly away at the end I missed I missed a whole bunch yeah oh yeah oh yeah yeah, this, I feel like, was so knowingly campy. There's something about this and the Haunted Mask, I think maybe because they take place on Halloween, but they just felt really pitch perfect. Yeah. <laughs> in the, the weirdest way. Like, they, it's, it's they like just watching, really what is that movie, it. The Worst Witch? It's like watching yeah. that. It's where it's, like, so kitschy bad that it goes around to funny to me. Yeah, like, I will be watching, I think, these two back-to-back every single <laughs> Halloween from now on. They're very Halloween-y. 
very, very, very Halloween-y. Yeah, but it's also, like, both to this episode and for all the episodes that I saw, because I watched, like, three additional ones beyond that, I was kind of glad that I did not fuck with this show, um, because I felt like, I feel like it would have really salted the earth of my affections for the books if I had watched it when it, com- when it came out. And it was, like, again, like I said, like, it came out several, several years after I had kind of lost interest in the books, and I'm, I'm glad I did not watch it. I also have to point out that in the Say Cheese and Die episode that also has Ryan Gosling, Scott Speedman is also Scott in that Scott Speedman episode. is in it. Yeah, oh, he yeah. plays a police officer. He's a police officer, and he's like wearing these like dark sunglasses at night, and it's him. really weird. Yeah. And I was like, I know I know that guy. So in the Say Cheese and Die episode, they do the recreation of the book cover, and it looks so stupid. It looks so dumb. It looks <laughs> like, like they skeletons. just took a bad picture of the cover and just were like, yeah. here it is. I just think it's funny in a lot of these episodes, they're like, we have to recreate the cover. Got it. The cover Gotta is put iconic. Got that cover in there. Got to look People like are going to be cover. looking for that cover. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also like that they get a new car, which is like, I don't know, like a station wagon or something, but they're all acting like it's a Ferrari. It like, was like a Ford Taurus. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, you guys, do you want to go for a joyride and on the highway? they all immediately get up from dinner and just le- like run from the dinner table to go like try out the new car. <laughs> Ryan Gosling's like, what is happening? I was just frustrated with reading the books. To me, it was like every word was perfect. So when it got to the TV episodes, I was like, that's not exactly how it was. <laughs> Slappy's hair is not going red. Slappy's wearing gray. Like, what, like, what's happening here? So when I was like, that's not a camera. That's a light-up toaster. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, my God. That camera looks insane. I like, love what is that light-up toaster. Is it just a huh? camera in the book? It was just, yeah. So it's like, why not Like why not just give us a Polar- at least a Polaroid-looking camera? They but it, it like honestly looks like a space-age, yeah. like, toaster with wings. It looks and, like, like the old... Um, lights on screensaver it. yes yeah. it looks like the toaster it's screensaver it's so weird because like <laughs> this thing does not in any way resemble a camera like nope. you would look at it and no. be like I have no idea what that is but everyone in the book is constantly like what's with the camera oh look you have a camera <laughs> oh and everybody's like P- please take my picture could you please take my picture like please how long like, does it take to develop like immediately <laughs> I'm glad you brought the camera cause now you can take my picture oh shit I, I don't think that's a good idea come on How's this? No, you gotta listen, Cherry. There's something really freaky about this thing. Will you just take the picture? Okay. Was that so hard? Let me see. Greg, you totally missed me. No, I didn't. I aimed it right at you. See, there's a tree you're leaning against. Then what am I? Invisible? Or a vampire? Come on, Greg. Let's try again. So, the TV show is really, really campy. Uh, The books are campy, too. The TV show, due to low production value and (laughs) the most mediocre actors in Canada. They reuse them a a bunch. Yeah. Well, and not only did they reuse them, there are so many actors in these who are in all of the early X-Files episodes that I, like, have visually memorized. So there were a million moments, even just watching six or seven episodes of this, where it was like, oh, I think I just saw, like, every background extra from the first five (laughs) seasons of X-Files. I think that's what they did, is they... They just pulled them aside 
slide from a Exiles yeah. episode, and they're like, "Here, uh, react to some. Here, we got a prop from this episode." But they even share plots with X Files episodes. This this whole camera thing is exactly replicated in one of the episodes yeah, of X Files. So Files stole it from Goosebumps, huh? I think so. Well, but I think Goosebumps stole it from Twilight Zone. Oh. To be fair, a lot of this also reminded me of Buffy. There's a dummy episode of Buffy. Yeah, oh, really? Of- there's a dummy X Files episode too. Oh my god! And well- I think a dummy Twilight Zone. <laughs> it's like I think those are kind of tropes that go through a lot of yeah. Yeah. sci-fi thriller uh, one more book I wanted to bring up that I read it was The Cuckoo Clock of Doom mm-hmm. because I it's more of a comedy book like it's it's about time travel but it's about a kid who accidentally starts going back in time and so he keeps reliving like various birthdays but he'll be like six and then he'll be three and so he has to go and like try and stop himself from not existing and in the end he ends up like uncreating his baby sister who's like a real brat in the tradition of all Goosebumps siblings but like the book ends with basically she just does not exist anymore so that's it was like a really funny kind of dark <laughs> dark twist in a like otherwise like comedic book so. look who's no longer talking yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah. Is there any other books that you particularly wanted to mention that are, like, if people are really loving loving their goosebumps <laughs> that you think people should check out? I mean, we hit a lot We hit a lot of the highlights. I do have a special place in my heart for Welcome to Dead House because it's the first and it's super dark. And I, all, I wish for the movies they had done a shocker on Shock Street, which was what my most likely two was mentioning. Yeah. It's just uh, the whole book is at a, uh, it's two kids at a horror movie monster movie studio and they are on like it is it is being tested to be turned into an amusement park so Mm. they are like in a roller coaster yes it's so much fun and then well you don't need to read it now but the spoil the the twist at the very end is you find out the character the main character's been a robot the whole time just created to (laughs) test the amusement park yeah, it's so fun. I actually read that one too, just because I like the title. I think Shocker on Shock Street. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, that one was really fun and meta. So there was a movie in 2015 mm-hmm. with Jack Black as R.L. Stein, which has Slappy the Dummy as like the main antagonist, and basically is about all of the Goosebumps being kind of like brought to life. But like, it starts with the abominable snowman of Pasadena, and like, there's like barely any like haunted mask in there. Yeah, it's a very strange. It's it like is very strange. Matthew and I both got to help a little bit at the end of the process. They brought us in to do like a test screening, and they were like, "We want to see if fans will like it." And we were like, "Um, this is good, but there are no none of the like classic monsters in it. Yeah, they just mm. chose. They literally the people involved were very nice, but like." <laughs> They, they were so like, we weird. don't know anything about Goosebumps, so they just randomly pulled, they pulled stuff from random, there's like a killer clown, there's no clown in any Goosebumps no. book. Weird. That's so fucking so- dumb, because you could so easily see it as being like a Hammer Films type horror movie, or like a univer- old style Universal, again, like going that s- totally spooky route, um, being a really fun movie that's like a grab bag of all the best characters people love, but it, it, to it, not even movie- like do that basic legwork, because I'm presuming that wasn't a cheap movie either. It was it was a little strange. To That's us, really honestly. weird. But the movie, while while I think the movie is a total blast, and I think it is, I think it's genuinely really funny, and it's really fun, and there's some like really good performances in it. It's still strange to me the cho- the monster choices. There's even at the end, there's a part with the 
the blob that ate everyone at the end that was originally written as monster blood and then they just changed it out last minute and it for somebody who's like obsessed with the books i'm like none of this makes sense with any of the books slappy mm. isn't even like how he is it just it, it seems a little lazy to me yeah and then so goosebumps 2 is now coming out this month two spums uh, oh that's good <laughs> that would have been a better title um but it has like the opposite problem of the first movie where it's like, they're like, and it's about a book that never existed. And right. So now they, they can just create whatever monsters they want. Right. To. And it's like, you're still not using any of the actual like well, intellectual or- property. Originally the plan. Uh, well, one of the ideas was for the second movie to be an adaptation of one of the books. And they, um, the executive producer wanted to, her, her desire was to turn the, the, the next movie into a book about a summer movie and make it about either camp jelly jam or um not i don't think it would be um welcome to camp nightmare but uh because there, there's also ghost camp there's a lot of camp movies mm-hmm. and they wanted to make like a summer sort of thing and that turned into then horror land they were going to make a movie that was just based on the horror land the horror land's also in one of the, one day at horror land's one of the other books it's very popular and is is about an amusement park that's like a scary, super scary place. And that was supposed to be the movie. Then they changed it back to, um, it was supposed to be a slappy Halloween. And then they just changed it to haunted Halloween and create their own sort of thing. It's bizarre. It's, I mean, it's like you have this thing that pretty much all children of the 90s are familiar with and have read. And like looking at these covers, <laughs> yeah. like they come back to you and you remember like these weird things. And it's so weird to like bring that back and yet like not bring it back at the same time and like just kind of be like i guess this is goosebumps but it's not really okay so speaking of crossover i think there should be a tyler perry presents medea's slappy halloween that's how we can bring it all back that sounds terrifying right can we also put jamie lee curtis in it (laughs) um obviously yes she's gonna do that she's gonna sign up so Arl Stein has written like 330 books or maybe even more than that now. Quote and unquote Arl Stein. <laughs> well, there, I mean, this podcast would be five hours long, but there was, there was a lawsuit like <gasps> in the late nineties about Arl Stein not writing all of his books. And it was found mm-hmm. out that he wrote all the books, but he stopped doing the outlines that people were hired to do all the outlines. So he would just fill it, fill everything in. I mean, th- yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Like, yeah, it was that, me is that a, is there a problem there? That's what a lot of these book series do. Appar- yeah. Apparently yeah. that was like the, the cry was like, he's not writing them. And then it was like, well, I do write them, but this is what happened. So that was what sort of like the result of all the losses. It actually were. sounds like he writes them more than a lot of this, like the authors who are this prolific and are releasing a book. Mm-hmm. Like, every couple of months like a lot of them i don't even think they look at <laughs> the the book that they're supposedly writing yeah, isn't that like a known thing with all these series that like yeah that there's ghost writers it's called ghost writing mm-hmm. it's scary <laughs> <laughs> all right so i don't know in summation like would you guys like <laughs> are you gonna go back and read <laughs> would you goose would you bump 400 <laughs> No, this was a disappointment. <laughs> I thought I would get something a little bit more, but I, yeah, I didn't like the TV show and I got nothing out of the books. But it's cool if kids today want to read Goosebumps. I think it's still great for 12 to 12 and a half year olds. <laughs> I think you should be like 12 and a quarter maybe before you start and then finish up by the time you're 12 and yeah, a half. Yeah, you have, you have half a year. 
<laughs> I mean, I just I would echo everything Becky said. I kind of suspected that my favorite parts of this would be seeing Daniel <laughs> and <laughs> watching some really silly television. The only thing I was not prepared for was the pure Canadianness of it. <laughs> And, yeah. and honestly, I would kind of recommend you check out some of the Goosebumps episodes on Netflix when you're really drunk yes. and just want to really hear some people go through some experiences. But that's about the most I can recommend from it. Yeah, I mean, like, the books do not hold up as literature, really. Um, <laughs> but, like, they're so quick. Like, you can read them in about an hour. You can kind of, like, flip through just, like, the first half and get the point of them and then kind of actually read the second half, I found, because that's where all the actual spooky stuff happens. So I had a pretty good time. And, like, the it was kind of like the more that I got into it, the more I got out of it. <laughs> because, like, the tropes became so familiar just hitting the same beats over and over. And, like, I kind of, like, bathed in the campiness of it and ended up, like, by the time the last thing I read and watched was The Haunted Mask, which I just did last night, and I was cackling with laughter, really enjoying how ridiculous all that was. So I think I get where <laughs> where Daniel is and, and the kind of spirit that you can get into enjoying these with, which is not a, like, serious literary perspective. <laughs> Certainly not. Daniel, yeah. I think you're still okay with it, right? Oh, you're yeah. This is all okay I think it. about and yeah. talk about. You're not going to so. cancel your podcast? <laughs> no. Podcasts, <laughs> everyone should listen to it. It's going to keep going for years. Is it I, don't think we've, I don't think we've even said the title of it. Yeah, Welcome to Deadcast. Oh, yeah. Said, welcome to Deadcast. Where, where Dead is it available to stream? On iTunes. Yeah. You can find it on iTunes. It's very high energy. I listened to a few episodes and we had Daniel on and I was like, we cannot have them both on because like they're so, they feed off each other so much that I was like, no one else would get to speak and they would take over the podcast. But Oh, we can't have that. No, no, no. No, We made the right choices here. But it has the same spirit of uh, camp and delicious (laughs) enjoyment that the, uh, I think like watching. Do you record while wearing pumpkin heads? Yeah. 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 You can hear them. Yeah. (laughs) You can hear through our jack-o'-lantern teeth. Everyone, check out Welcome to Deadcast on iTunes. And Daniel, do you have anything else coming up this month that you'd like to oh, share with Oh, sure. Us? If you're in the Los Angeles area, I run a thing called Creep LA, which is not your typical haunted house. We're in downtown, so just um, search for Creep LA. Come see us. It'll be scary and fun. It's not campy at all. <laughs> it's just very this is, scary. This is scary, not spooky, folks. Yes, this is scary. There's no spook factor. Are there dad jokes? <laughs> is it gory? Yeah, you're it's gory. It is not not gory no it is That's heavy good. heavy on the mood and the scares hmm. um so yeah creep la come come out and come out and say hey i'm in it you'll see me there awesome well thank you so much for joining us thank you. Thanks Thanks for having me. i know this was like a wild departure from you from your own goosebumps podcast <laughs> <laughs> and you were actually your brother the whole time it turns out in a wild <laughs> twist i am my brother and you're also a robot i am a robot I have who to is also an alien and was also correct. just a cat well, <laughs> well I have a cat having a dream <laughs> I have to go back to Earth now, you guys. Oh! <laughs> what? <laughs> I haven't been on Earth this whole time. I think we're still one twist away from where a typical Goosebumps ends. <laughs> and we'll let you know that twist on the next episode of the When We Were Young podcast. On our next episode... We will continue celebrating Halloween by watching the 1978 film Halloween starring Jamie Lee Curtis and talking about the upcoming 2018 remake, Halloween, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, <laughs> as well as Halloween H2O, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, the midpoint of the franchise so far. It is our Halloween episode. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all the Jamie Lee Curtis we have time for today. 
The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. You can find us on iTunes as well, and please leave us a review of five stars or more. I have been Seth Pearson. I'm Becky. And I'm... Get it out already! Carly Beth. And I'm Daniel. And we're all very sorry. I'm sorry. That was a blast! You know, I think we're getting to like Halloween as much as you did. Hey, it's the one time a year you get to be someone else. We better get back. Nice meeting you, Walker. You too. We'll see you next year, Drake. again. Shane, Shauna, wait! Do you guys want some candy for the trip back? No thanks. It's not part of our diet. But if you know where some nice plump adults are, we'll eat those. You mean... You eat humans? Only when we're hungry. We just finished a four-course meal earlier tonight. Four-course meal? The four missing people. <laughs> <laughs>